Well, every traveler knows that there are two things that you need in order to reach your destination. If I were to ask you, what are the two things that you need to get where you're going on a road trip? What are the two things you need? What am I thinking? Read my thoughts. Gas. Gas, also known as fuel. Okay. Anything else? Living water. water. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. Okay. Always needed. Anything else? A map. (laughs) Amen. Some of us need maps. Others of us have smartphones. A destination. We know where we're going. Um. You guys have had this experience, I'm sure. When you're traveling on a road trip or if you're flying somewhere, uh, you often, when you get there, even though you've been sitting the whole time with your driving, flying, whatever, you get there, you're tired, right? Like, I haven't even done anything. I'm already tired. I've just been sitting in my car for all these hours. I've been sitting on this plane, and yet I'm still exhausted. And it often takes some time to get our strength back to actually enjoy our trip. So I'm going to argue that the two things every traveler needs are fuel, Ricardo, and rest. Rest. Without fuel, our car wouldn't run, our plane wouldn't fly, our body wouldn't work. Without rest, we may fall asleep at the wheel. Or at least we'd be miserable when we get to our destination. And if you have small kids, that's especially true. If you get to your destination and you're tired and the kids are ready to go and you're like ready to not go, (laughs) it can make life miserable for everyone. So when we're traveling, it's good and necessary to have fuel and even rest as we travel. Now, if John Bunyan, the great English Puritan, was right, Bunyan was right and the Christian life is best summarized as a pilgrimage or a journey toward a celestial city, then we're going to need fuel and rest on our way there. Without fuel, we'll fall by the wayside and not be able to keep going. Without rest, we'll burn out and not be able to keep going. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 22, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The Bible always talks about salvation in three ways. We were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Jesus plainly says, those who endure to the end will be saved. Those who make it to the finish line, those who keep following, serving, loving Jesus Christ to the very, very end are the ones who show themselves to be saved. I want to make it to the end, do you? Do you want to make it to the end? Do you want to make it to the end? I want to make it to the end. I want to finish this race. Even if I'm crawling, dragging myself across the finish line, I want to make it to the end. But I know that the only way I'll get there is if I have fuel and rest on the journey toward the celestial city. In His grace, God thankfully has provided just what we need for this journey. He's a good and kind father who knows exactly what his pilgrim children need. From the very beginning, God gave his people a means to refuel and a means to rest while we journey through the wilderness toward the promised land. The gas station or truck stop 
looked different at different times in salvation history. For Israel, the gas station or rest stop looked differently than it does for the New Testament people of God, namely the church of Jesus Christ. But in both testaments, God has steadily provided the gift of fuel and the gift of rest throughout His people's journey through the wilderness to the promised land. And the good news is, not only has He provided these gifts, He's not a miser. God's not a miser. He's not stingy. He doesn't give us the bare minimum. He doesn't give His people a dirty old gas station with no bathrooms. Ever stopped at one of those? Or you get to one of those old gas stations and the bathroom's outside and it's locked? And you're like, why is this bathroom locked? i got to go right now. Anyways. God gives His people the buckies of travel stops. He provides His people with lavish and abundant good refreshment and fuel. But this fuel and refreshment comes, this provision comes in ways we might not expect. The way God refuels His people is by gathering them for worship around His Word. The way God refuels His people is by gathering them for worship around His Word. The way God rests His people is by giving them one day out of seven to Sabbath. One day out of seven to cease from working. God provides His pilgrim people with fuel through worship and rest through the Sabbath. Apart from these good gifts, an already hard journey journey becomes nearly impossible. With these good gifts, we will be able to make it to our destination and the journey will even be infused with joy. Isn't this good news? Some of you wonder, will I make it? Will I be a Christian at the end? Will I... Will I fall into Jesus' arms when I fall asleep or die. The good news is that God promises to get you to the finish line, but He doesn't just promise the end. He promises the means to that end. The means I'm arguing for this morning are, at least two of them, fuel and rest. He wants to get you there. He wants you to get there. He wants you to cross the river into the celestial city, as Bunyan puts it. And so He gives us the gathering of the church and He gives us the Sabbath. Through the centuries, the church has understood how these two things relate, how these two things, worship and rest, relate to one another in various ways. Before the church, how Israel was to worship and rest was clearly defined in the law of Moses. The seventh day was a Sabbath, a day to cease from working. And worship revolved around the sacrificial system, first at the tabernacle and later at the temple. There were specific feasts and holy days throughout the year where certain sacrifices were to be made. But you could worship through sacrifice at the tabernacle or temple any time throughout the year. So worship was centered around one specific place, tabernacle and temple. Rest was one specific day, namely the Sabbath day, the seventh day. For Israel, But then after the exile, during the exile, after God judged His people and sent them into Babylon, Babylonian exile, Babylonian captivity, after the temple was destroyed, the development of the synagogue system 
began to reshape the way worship was done for Israelites. Did you know the synagogues haven't been around forever? They're not even in the Bible, the Old Testament. The synagogues rose to prominence during the exile, after the exile, and they reshaped the way the Israelites did worship. Worship and rest began to be centered on the same day and revolved around activities at the synagogue. The conflation of these two elements eventually led Christians, some Christians, to suppose that the day of worship and the day of rest must be the same day. This idea is called Sabbatarianism. There'll be a quiz later for how you spell that. Sabbatarianism. You hear the word Sabbath in there. Sabbatarianism says that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, says it like this, quote, After the resurrection of Christ, the Sabbath day was changed to the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. This day is to be kept to the end of the age as the Christian Sabbath, since the observance of the last day of the week has been abolished, end quote. Now, interestingly, as much as many of us love or may love that confession, this idea actually isn't found in the New Testament, nor is it found in the first three centuries of the Christian church. This view began to take hold in the church in the early 300s after the Emperor Constantine declared that Sunday would be in, or the day of the sun, Sunday would be an empire-wide day of rest. He gave everybody the day off, essentially. Historian Justo Gonzalez says, quote, This decree, Constantine's decree in 321, had enormous consequences for the history of Sunday. Up to this time, Christians did not relate Sunday observances with the commandment to rest on the Sabbath. Sunday was not a day of rest. This is so insightful. It could not be for Gentile Christians who were not masters of their own time, end quote. In other words, they didn't, most of the Christians in these centuries didn't have control over their schedules. They worked for someone else, and they weren't Jews large by large measure, and so they couldn't just take off on Sunday. New Testament scholar Andrew Lincoln adds, nowhere do the New Testament writers or the writings of the first three centuries of the church's life indicate that the first day was actually treated as a day of rest. End quote. So, Sabbatarianism. Sunday, today, is the new Christian Sabbath. I'm saying that there are at least three problems with that view. First, it misapplies Old Testament commands to Christians. Second, it's not commanded in the New Testament. Third, it's not found in the first three centuries of the church. Now, this does not mean that Sabbatarianism is bad or evil or sinful. Some of you may even hold this view, and that's okay. Many Christians have taken this position throughout church history. If you were here last week, I preached on the conscience. I preached at length about disputable matters. This is one of those. Because the New Testament isn't clear on how Christians should Sabbath or how Christians should appropriate the Sabbath commands of the Old Testament, Christians are free to do whatever their conscience allows them to do. And our consciences may disagree, and that's okay. 
We shouldn't, we shouldn't judge one another, though, when our consciences do disagree. If we have differing views of the Sabbath or the Lord's Day, we shouldn't judge one another and assume that our motives are wrong or bad or ungodly. Paul addresses this issue directly in Romans 14.5. He says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And here's his conclusion. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, if, if Sunday is the Sabbath for you, know why you think that. Be able to articulate that. If it's not the Christian Sabbath for, for you, why do you think that? You need to be able to articulate that. Again, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then Colossians 2.16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So apparently there were some in the church in the first century who were debating and disagreeing about this issue of the Christian's view and practice on the Sabbath. Some Christians have taught that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. Our church believes that that view binds the conscience in a way that the Bible doesn't. So we as a church say that we're characterized, excuse me, we're not characterized by being Sabbatarian, Sabbatarian. This means that we don't teach that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. Sunday is the new Sabbath day. However, if you believe that it is, that's okay. You don't have to come let me know. You're perfectly okay to hold that and practice that. But you must not require other church members to believe the same. Talk about it, fine. Require that others agree with you is divisive in the body of Christ. So, that's an excursus on Sabbatarianism. If Sunday, if, um, if Sunday isn't the new Christian day of rest, is God's gift of the Sabbath still available for Christians? And when are Christians supposed to refuel for worship? In other words, John, uh, you were going on and on about fuel and rest, um, but you just said that Christian isn't the Sabbath, so when are we supposed to do this? Where's the fuel? Where's the rest? Where's the fuel? When's the rest? Well... I'm going to take these in reverse order. I'm going to talk about worship first and then rest. Here's my main point for the next 30 minutes. Jot this down. This will be the summarizing point I want to try to make. The principle of the Sabbath still stands for Christians. And Sunday should ordinarily be set aside for Christian worship. The principle of the Sabbath still stands for Christians and Sunday should ordinarily be set aside by Christians for Christian worship. That's where we're going. First Sunday, the first day of the week, should ordinarily be set aside for Christian worship. Sunday should ordinarily be set aside for Christian worship. Let me show you why and then give you some implications of this. The reason why Sunday should ordinarily be set aside for worship is because that's the, pa- the pattern we find in the New Testament. The first Christians began gathering for worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, because that's the day when Jesus rose from the dead. Mark 16, 2, And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, They went to the tomb, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. 
Matthew 28, 1, Luke 24, 1 says the same, John 21 says essentially the same thing. Then John 20, 19 says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So what happened on the first day of the week? Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his followers. He rose from the dead and appeared to his followers on Sunday, the first day of the week. Thus, his first followers began gathering amongst themselves to worship him on the first day of the week, what we call Sunday. Now, to be fair, there isn't clear teaching on this in the New Testament, um, but there is a clear pattern. In other words, there aren't Bible verses that say, this is how the church did it, when the church did it, etc., etc. You know, there's not clear teaching on this, but there is a pattern that emerges over the course of the New Testament. First, in Acts 20, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, but he stops in a city called Troas for a week. Verse 7 of Acts 20 says, On the first day of the week, when we, he's talking about the Christians of that city, when we were gathered together to break bread, that is, have the Lord's Supper, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. Amen. It even goes on to say that Paul preached so long that a young man fell asleep and fell out of a window and died. It's dangerous, guys, falling asleep during church. I'm just saying. That's in the Bible. Thankfully... It appears that Paul had the gift of miracles because Paul goes down there and this guy is brought back from the dead. The point here is that Paul gathers with with the Christians in Troas to do two things. Lord's Supper and teaching. Lord's Supper and teaching. Kind of sounds like a church service, doesn't it? The first day of the week they gathered together for teaching and sacrament. Then we get to 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. We see this pattern emerge again. It says, now concerning the collection for the saints. He's talking about this love offering he's gathering to take to the saints in Jerusalem. Concerning this offering, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul's telling this church and these church members to gather their offerings on the first day of the week, to store them up and hold them together so that when he comes, everything will be ready so he can take it on to Jerusalem. The assumption here, though not stated explicitly, the assumption here is that the church in Corinth was doing what on the first day of the week? Gathering. They were gathering. They were getting together, bringing their resources together and also likely worshiping together on the first day of the week. This day eventually began to be called the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. In Revelation 1.10, the Apostle John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind, behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So eventually Christians began to call this first day of the week the Lord's Day, And then for 2,000 years, Christians have ordinarily set apart that day, the first day of the week, Sunday, for worship. Now quickly, I'm, I'm saying ordinarily on purpose because not every church 
does it that way. Many Christians, for example, in an Islamic context, worship on Fridays. Because that's the day in their culture that that the government gives everyone off work. It's kind of like their Sabbath. And so Christians, historically, in Islamic context, have found that it's the most convenient and strategic time to meet for worship. It would be kind of hard to invite your friend to church on Sunday if everyone's working on Sunday. So our Christian friends in the Middle East and elsewhere hold their gatherings on Fridays. But meeting on Sunday, when and where possible, is preferred because it's the pattern we find in the New Testament. So is having a Saturday night service wrong or sinful? Not necessarily. But normally, ordinarily, a church should gather on the first day of the week because this is the pattern we find in the New Testament. Now let me give you some implications. Let me give you one practical implication, then one more theological implication. First, first implication of this this idea of Christians meeting on the first day of the week. The implication, just to state it plainly, is that if you're a Christian, going to church should be a normal part of your life. I don't want to just ever assume the obvious here. If you're a Christian, going to church on Sunday, the first day of the week, should be a normal part of your life. This is the clear pattern of Scripture, and it's commanded in Hebrews 10. Let us not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. Unfortunately, this is still the habit of some. Just this week, I was discouraged, greatly discouraged, as I read the 2021 book of reports for our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, In this book of reports, it reports that there are approximately 14 million members in SBC churches, but that only approximately 4.4 million of those members are in worship each week. Do the math. It's like 31% of church members are regularly in church. What, What does this say about our understanding of church and the gospel and the Lordship of Christ. What does this say about our love for one another? What does this say about the health of our convention? By God's grace, our church, our attendance, reflects our membership. We have 60-something members. We average 60-something in church. That's a good indication of health. Praise God. None of us, of course, will be able to be in church every Sunday And you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. That's not the point. The point, though, is that just as an employee, you regularly go to work. And as a family member, you regularly gather with your family. So also a Christian will regularly be in church. For many church members in America, regular attendance is one or two times a month. But but what if you only ate half of your meals every month or only went to work half of the time? You wouldn't be very healthy and you wouldn't be a growing and productive member of your company. We tell our members at Preston Highlands that unless you're sick or out of town, we expect you to be with the church in worship. Our church covenant says we covenant to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It even goes on to say we covenant to when we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's Word. Why? Because you have to go to church to be a Christian? No, no, no. Because if you are a Christian, you will want to be with other Christians. 
This is basic Christianity for 2,000 years. But in America, we've kind of forgotten these things and assumed that if you, if you force these things upon people, well, that's legalism. But it's not because it's the pattern of the Bible. Even commanded in Hebrews 10. I didn't plan to do this, but I want to brag on Pat Shida. Pat moved to another city and immediately started looking for another church and now has joined another church. He quickly found another family to walk with and worship with and grow with and serve with. Praise God for His faithfulness. If any of us ever move from here, we must quickly, as soon as possible, find a church family because church is a normal part of the Christian life not an occasional part of the Christian life. This isn't supposed to be a burden, by the way. I love the end of Hebrews 10.25. You know, let us not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. But then it says this, but encourage one another. But encourage one another. Do you see what he's doing? The opposite of not meeting together is encouragement. Encouragement. Meaning that when we meet together, what happens? Starts with an E, ends with encouragement. 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 How will you be encouraged if you're not here? How will you encourage anyone? How will you be encouraged? Regular. I just saw this great tweet the other day. So many of us could be saved. It said something to the effect of so many of us could be saved from mental, emotional, spiritual, physical kind of meltdowns. I'm I'm, I'm not quoting it correctly. If there were simply regular, simple, ordinary doses of encouragement in our life. Who are you encouraging? Who are you encouraging? Who are you encouraging? The gathering is for encouragement. It's not about checking a box or being religious or looking good or whatever. We need each other. We need encouragement. Our minds, our hearts, our bodies need to know we're not alone. It's no wonder that the mental health of so many Christians suffered during the pandemic. Why? Because many of us were alone. We need each other deeply and desperately. Now, sometimes I get it. Our job may tell us, hey, you have to work on Sundays and therefore we have to miss church. In that case, I'd encourage you, brother or sister, start praying for a new schedule or a new job. When you apply for a job, tell your employer up front that you can't work on Sunday mornings. Parents, I think what I'm saying means for us that we shouldn't allow our children to be in sports leagues or dance or this or that, gymnastics, whatever it is, um, if it causes us to miss church on the weekend. Of course, we'll all miss church for some reason, but not all reasons for missing are created equal. Going to church every Sunday should be a normal part of a Christian's life because it's it's what Christians have been doing since Jesus got up from the dead. Now, that's Implication number one. Implication number two is much shorter. It's a theological implication, and it's here, but it's easy for us to miss. Think about this. The early church began to call um, the first day of the week, or Sunday, they began to call it the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. What does that have to teach us? 
They didn't call it church day or, you know, religion day or worship day. They didn't call it any of that. They called it the Lord's day. It means that in their mind, in their understanding of life, their entire life and their entire week was governed from the standpoint or the starting point of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Their week and their life started with Jesus as King. The Lord's day governed every other day, governed every other thing. Jesus is Lord of His church. This is what we declare every Sunday when we gather to worship Him. Together we're saying that Jesus is Lord, not work, not sports, not recreation, not presidents, not political parties, not family, not anything. When we gather to worship, we're saying that Jesus runs our life. Jesus is our King. Jesus is our Master. So, the way God refuels His people is by gathering us together once a week, every single week, until He comes back. And when we gather together, we sing, we pray, we fellowship, we study His Word, we hear His Word, and as we do that, our joy in Christ increases and we are encouraged. We are built up. The Lord's day is a gift for the Lord's people. It's a place and a time you can be refueled and reignited to love and serve Christ and others. So before we move to rest, just take stock in your own life. How do you feel and how do you think about what we're doing right now? You're like, John, I wish you would just kind of pick up the pace. because. No, seriously, how do you feel? about church? What do you think about coming to this building and all of its red carpet glory? What do, you, what do you think? What do you feel about this? Is it something you do or part of who you are? The Lord's Day. This is the Lord's Day. It's a beautiful day. And it's fuel for our faith. There's something else, of course, I said earlier, there's rest. The other gift God gives His people for their journey is the gift of rest. The way God rests His people is by giving them, as I said, one day out of seven to cease from working. God provides His pilgrim people with fuel through worship and rest through Sabbath. The commands to Israel about the Sabbath may no longer be binding, but they still have a lot to teach us. Here's what the commands in the Old Testament, teach us New Testament people of God. God cares about your rest. Your rest is important. And I'll just say out at the out front, Susie uh, can uh, amen this. I don't do a great job of this. I know I need to do this, but I'm not great at this. Because there's, as a pastor, there's always something to do. More needs to be done. So I don't claim to, to do this well but I feel deep inside of me my need to do this well. God's concerned about His people's rest. The Sabbath is a unique gift to God's unique people. First, Israel, and I think by principle of way of implication, the church. Listen to what this Jewish writer, a woman named Judith Shulevitz, says. Listen to how she talks about how the Jewish rabbis described the Sabbath. She says, quote, The Sabbath, said the rabbis, is a bride given, to, given by God to her groom, the people of Israel. 
Once a week they go forth in wedding clothes to marry her. The Sabbath, said the rabbis, is a gift from God's treasury. Once a week His people receive it and are enriched. The Sabbath, said the rabbis, is the temple in time rather than space. I love that. The Sabbath is the temple in time rather than space. Once a week, every Jew becomes a priest and enters it. The Sabbath, said the rabbis, is the chosen day, just as the children of Israel are the chosen people. End quote. So Jewish people typically understand the beauty and power and wonder of the Sabbath. They understand that the Sabbath is a gift, that rest is needed, and they receive it. I'm afraid that many of us modern evangelical Christians don't see it that way, especially in North Dallas, especially in big cities, especially in America, especially where we live and when we live. We struggle to rest. We struggle to rest. Even when we're resting, we think we're resting, you're still plugged in. You still got some background noise going on. I'll get more on that in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. But Jesus says this explicitly. He says that the Sabbath, Mark 2.27, was made for man. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath as a gift for mankind. He didn't make us for the Sabbath. Now those in Christ are free to not observe the Sabbath laws, but we're not free to be fools and never rest. We aren't free to ignore God's wisdom. We aren't free from the wisdom of the principle of the Sabbath. Pursuing a pattern of regular rest is wise, not slavish law-keeping. Adam Mabry in his book, The Art of Rest, says, If you're concerned that by embracing regular rest, regular Sabbath rest, you're in danger of coming under some harsh legalism, simply ask yourself how not observing Sabbath rest is going for you. It's not rest that threatens to oppress you, but your refusal to, end quote. Do some stock right now this morning. How do you feel? Physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. How are you feeling? Like, John, I'm so busy. That's what everybody says. I say it too. Right? I'm so busy. I'm stressed. I'm overwhelmed. Everything. Everything. Always everything. Always everything. Maybe it's because you're not resting. Maybe it's because you're not resting. Do some stock on whether you're resting. And if not, why not? When? When should Christians Sabbath if it's not going to be on the Lord's day? Which it can be if you want it to be. When should you rest? When should you Sabbath? Well, whenever you want. Whenever you want. Whenever's best for you and your family dynamic. Take a day each week. Or sometimes, for me, it works like this. It's a portion of a day. A portion of several days throughout the week. I try to take Monday mornings off. People inevitably blow up my phone anyways. (laughs) I still love you. Take portions of days or one day to cease from working, turn everything off, and rest. Take time each year to rest. We call this vacation. You're not lazy if you take a vacation. That's ridiculous. That's America speaking, not God. Rest through taking a vacation. Whether you're single Grab a friend and go somewhere. 
married, grab your family and go somewhere. If you have kids, try to go somewhere with your wife and leave your kids with the grandparents so that you'll actually rest. Find out what works for you and your family at your stage of life. Talk to another brother or sister in Christ. See what they do. There's no rule book on this, but there are principles that you neglect to your detriment. Now, let me say a quick word, though, to husbands who have young children. Your wife needs you to give her time without the children. Your wife needs you to give her time without the children. Um, mothers won't be able to clock out of caring for the little ones unless you, dad, step in and do something to make that happen. You take the kids. You do something with the kids so that mom can have half a day, mom can have a day, mom can have a weekend and go and rest. Young moms perhaps need rest more than most of us, so dad, please make sure you're finding, helping her find time for this regular refreshment in the Lord Now, that brings us to this question. What should we do when we rest? Well, two things. Do anything that's not work. Do anything that's not work. This doesn't mean inactivity. It means do something that's not part of your regular work. It means do something just for fun. Find a hobby, something you can do to unwind that isn't part of your job. For me, it's running and reading. You're like super lame. I don't care what you think. It's restful for me. Running isn't easy, but it's restful. Reading for me is restful, especially when it's stuff that's not related to my work. So when we go on vacation, I'll take a stack of random books that I just want to read for fun because that's restful. And for me also as a pastor and an introvert and who's always around people, for me, rest means being away from people. It means doing something with the fewest amount of people as possible. So what do you love to do? What feeds your soul? What makes your soul come alive? You're like, I don't know, John, I just work. Stop working for a minute and just think about this. What makes your soul come alive? And pursue those things as best you can, as often as you can. Secondly, we should worship when we rest. Sabbath in the Old Testament wasn't just a time to hang out and do fun stuff. Sabbath was a time of rest And all that meant was cease from your regular work. So stop doing your regular work and do something that's not regular work. So that's not all it said. It also said, as you cease from work, this is a time holy to the Lord. This is a time set apart to the Lord God. So Sabbath for us, I think, by implication means setting apart time to rest, time to cease from our labor and to rest in and with the Lord. This means that when you rest, you should have your Bible open, and you should be praying and talking to God. Maybe not the whole time, but at least throughout the time. The point is to rest with Jesus, not from Jesus. So, binging on Netflix during your Sabbath isn't Sabbathing. I'm not saying you can never watch TV or whatever. I'm not saying that. But like if half a day is spent just watching TV or surfing the internet or playing video games, I'm going to argue that that's not Sabbathing, if that's all you do. That's checking out. That's numbing your mind. I'm saying pursue things that fill your soul, not things that just numb your mind. Your soul needs food. Your heart needs food. Your body needs rest. Find something you enjoy. Do it with the Lord. And do it as often as possible. We need to slow down in this culture. 
I've just walked with too many of you for too long. So many of us are hurting, deeply hurting, grieving, pain, affliction, sin. But what happens is we never stop long enough to actually think about what we're thinking about, to actually feel what we're feeling, to actually try to understand what's going on. Many of us struggle to grieve because we never stop long enough to grieve. God wants to heal our hearts and rest our bodies. Sabbath is His invitation for us to find this healing, this peace, this rest, this renewed joy with Him and in Him. Sabbath is God's gift to us, meant to keep us alive and healthy and on the narrow road that leads to the celestial city. Again, the road is hard enough if you do rest. Imagine how hard the road is if you're always exhausted. So the Sabbath command is for us by way of principle and is neglected at great detriment to ourselves. The Sabbath command from the Old Testament is the only one of the Ten Commandments not explicitly repeated in the New Testament. What is clear is that Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath laws for us. Bill just read this for us. Let me read it again. Hebrews 4, We who have believed enter that rest. And then verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another rest, excuse me, another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Our ultimate rest is only and ever going to be found in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus did the hard work of living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead on the third day, so that everyone who puts their faith and trust and hope in Him and forgives, or excuse me, and turns from their sin will be forgiven and given eternal Sabbath rest. Jesus fulfills the law so that we can rest from trying to keep the law. Many of you are trying so hard for God to like you. You're trying so hard to appear religious or appear spiritual or appear godly or whatever. And God says, look to Jesus. He's already done everything. He's already done everything. Rest. The Sabbath points us to the one who can truly give us rest. Rest for our souls. Listen to Jesus' offer. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. So the beauty of Jesus' message isn't that you kind of have to unburden yourself before you come to Him. The beauty of His message isn't that you have to collect yourself, get your life together, you know, stop smoking and drinking and cussing and, you know, going to church all the time. No, the beauty of the gospel is that friendship with Jesus is for anybody who admits that they need His rest that they're weary and heavy laden. So whether you're working hard to make your life look better than it actually is, you're laboring or you're finding yourself weighed down by things beyond your control, you're heavy laden, or maybe you're both, Jesus wants to give you rest. He sees you. He understands what you're doing, what you've done, what's been done to you. And His heart is tender. Again, His promise isn't, if you will will clean up your life, 
I'll give you rest. He says, if you'll come to me. He says, if you'll come to me, I'll give you rest. He's welcoming and willing and open and ready to receive you. All you have to do is be honest with yourself and with him about your need. He wants to give us fuel through his word and through his people and keep us going. And he wants to give us rest through the Sabbath to keep us going. All of this is meant to increase our joy on the journey. But as I said at the beginning, all of this is meant to ensure that we actually get to the end. So how's, how's your worship? How's your rest? How's your worship? How's your rest? I'll close with this. I read this from Ray Ortland this week. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, welcomes you. Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, welcomes you. I will give you rest. I will. Just come. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would take what's been said and use it to work in us the ways that we need We're in so much need. Many of us are tired and weary and weary. Many of us, if we're honest, many of us are frustrated with you. We're angry that things have turned out the way they have. We're upset and we don't know what to do with that. We're tired and we don't know what to do. Lord, I pray that this promise would fall on our hearts like a spring rain. I will give you rest. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. Lord, help your people to rest in you. Help us to remember what you've done. Help us to be actively thinking about how we can rest, how we can Sabbath, how we can cease from working. Help us to be more and more committed to your bride, the men and women that you bought with your blood. May we be committed to the regular gathering of the people of God for our own encouragement, for our own encouragement. We need rest and we often find it here, right here in this room through your word, by your spirit. Help us in these things, Father. Help us. Send your spirit. Show us the things that we need to see. Help us to take what we need to take. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.